there and welcome to Great Talks, presented by the Melbourne Recital Centre. I'm Graham Abbott. The next concert in the Great Performers series will take place in the Elizabeth Murdoch Hall on Wednesday the 16th of June at 7.30pm. In the spotlight on this occasion will be one of Australia's finest pianists and composers, Ian Munro. Originally from Melbourne and now based there, Ian Munro's career as a pianist spans a vast array of solo repertoire, chamber music and concertos, ranging from standard repertoire to rarely heard works. He's premiered new works by a large number of composers and has a reputation for imaginative and thought-provoking programming. He's performed throughout Australia and New Zealand, as well as appearing with major orchestras in Europe, the USA and China. In the UK, he's performed concertos with many of the major orchestras and broadcast extensively for the BBC. In tandem with his career as a pianist, Ian Munro is a highly respected composer. He remains the only Australian to have been awarded the Grand Prix at the Queen Elizabeth Competition for Composers in Belgium, and his music includes solo piano pieces, songs, chamber music and orchestral works. I had the privilege in 2006 of conducting the premiere of one of Ian's works myself, a piece for cello and orchestra called O Traurigkeit, which was written for Sue Ellen Paulson and the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra. And as if that wasn't enough, Ian Munro is also active as a teacher, both in Australia and internationally, and is sought after as a juror for major international piano competitions. Ian's program for this recital comprises music by three composers, Felix Mendelssohn, Sergei Rachmaninov and himself. A little later I'll share with you part of a chat I had with Ian in which we talked about his new piano sonata, which will receive its premiere performance in this concert. But before that, music by two composers whose lives more or less bookend the entire Romantic period. Felix Mendelssohn was a pretty amazing man. He ranks as one of the two best-known child prodigies in classical music, the other being Mozart. But even compared to Mozart, Mendelssohn's talents were extraordinary. He came from a privileged and highly educated background. He was the grandson of Moses Mendelssohn, one of the most influential European philosophers of the late 18th century, and his father, Abraham Mendelssohn, was a successful banker. Young Felix showed highly advanced skills in music, languages and painting, among other disciplines, and his early masterpieces come from when he was just 12 and 13 years old. He was a brilliant pianist as well, and the staggering achievements of his terribly short life, he was just 38 when he died, defy description. Mendelssohn lived in the early 19th century, when the early flowerings of musical romanticism were spreading across Europe. As a composer, he blended the spirit of earlier times with Romanticism, creating a unique blend of musical expression. He was fascinated by the music of Johann Sebastian Bach from the Baroque period a century before, as well as that of Mozart and the composers of the Classical period in the late 18th century. To Baroque intricacy and classical balance, he added Romantic individuality. He wrote fugues, organ works and cantatas, like Bach, as well as symphonies, concertos and chamber music, like Mozart. But Romanticism favoured freer forms, more individual modes of expression, and these ideas found their way into Mendelssohn's music as well. Perhaps the most famous of his truly romantic works are his Songs Without Words. 
the early Romantic piano composers moved away from the standard forms used by composers of the classical period, such as formal sonatas and sets of variations. In the 19th century, such structures were the exception rather than the rule. The Romantics preferred shorter, freer forms. Schubert wrote impromptus and musical moments. Chopin wrote preludes, ballades and pieces based on dances like the Polonaise and the Mazurka. Mendelssohn's Songs Without Words, a term he invented, fit right into this style of writing. They're short, often delicate, sometimes descriptive, but above all, as the idea of a song might suggest, they're deliciously melodic. From 1829 to 1845, Mendelssohn produced a total of eight books of Songs Without Words. Each volume contains six pieces, making a total of 48 in all. They were published and disseminated widely during and after the composer's lifetime, tapping into the huge market for music designed for domestic use at a time when a piano was regarded as an essential accoutrement of any stylish home. The songs without words are not virtuoso pieces, but rather cater to players of varying abilities. But it mustn't be thought that the music is in any way inferior to Mendelssohn's bigger, more public works. He was too good a composer for that. More approachable on a technical level these pieces may be, but their quality and inventiveness is consistently of the first rank. Indeed, the mark of Mendelssohn's genius can be seen in that even when catering for the domestic market, his music is still full of fascinating detail and exquisite beauty. Despite a few of the pieces having descriptive titles like Venetian Boat Song or Funeral March or the famous Spring Song, most of the songs without words have no titles apart from their tempo indications. This hasn't stopped people from trying to work out what the pieces are about, as if they have to be about anything. Like any music, a listener can easily put their own meaning onto something they hear, and the same piece could suggest completely different things to different hearers. But from the composer's point of view, most of the pieces are simply music, without an intended meaning or narrative. This didn't stop people, even in Mendelssohn's lifetime, trying to interpret the pieces and discover some meaning in them. Some even attempted to add words to Mendelssohn's music to make them literal songs. To these notions, the composer is known to have said, People often complain that music is too uncertain in its meaning, that what they should be thinking as they hear it is unclear, whereas everyone understands words. With me, it is exactly the reverse, and not only in the context of an entire speech, but also with individual words. These two seem to me so uncertain, so vague, so easily misunderstood in comparison to genuine music that fills the soul with a thousand things better than words. The thoughts expressed to me by the music I love are not too indefinite to be put into words, but on the contrary, too definite. If you ask me what I had in mind when I wrote it, I would say, just the song as it is. And if I happen to have certain words in mind for one or another of these songs, I would never want to tell them to anyone, because the same words never mean the same things to others. Only the song can say the same thing, can arouse the same feelings in one person as in another. A feeling that is not expressed, however, by the same words. In this great performance program, 
Ian Munro will perform the six pieces of Book One of the Songs Without Words. This was first published in England in 1829, when the composer was 20. The first piece in the set perhaps makes clearest of all the idea of a song without words. There's a very singable melody in the uppermost part, and the composer even marks it with the word cantabile, meaning it should be played in a singing style. The middle part of the texture is taken up with harp-like figurations, underneath which is a simple but essential bass line directing the harmony. It looks so simple on the page, but to bring out the three parts of the texture in a way that is satisfying and well-balanced takes real artistry. The second piece in the set is more agitated, with a nervous, unrelenting bass line swirling around under the yearning melody. This is swept away by the brilliance of the third song without words, a dazzling galloping piece. The swirling semiquavers and the treble near the end would have challenged many a drawing-room pianist at home. The fourth piece in the set is in the same key as the third, but there the similarities end. Here we return to the idea of a more literal song, complete with a piano introduction before the song proper begins in the fifth bar. Indeed, this melody moves beyond the idea of a mere song. It seems to be more of a hymn. There's even a point where the singing seems to stop and the piano ends with a little coda in the style of the introduction, just to round things off. This little gem, and it is very little, says everything it needs to say in just a few moments. It's a miracle of compact expression which leaves us completely satisfied. The fifth piece, which again requires a pianist of far more than basic technique, seems to develop ideas from its predecessors. At the start, there's clearly a melody on the top with a mobile accompaniment in the middle of the texture and a supportive bass line underneath, just as we've had before. But here Mendelssohn varies the texture much more, as the melody often moves to the lowest part of the music while the agitated accompaniment swirls over the top. This song could almost be a duet, perhaps, with the unexpected change to the major key at the end, suggesting all sorts of dramatic scenarios to those so inclined. The sixth and final piece in this book of songs without words bears a descriptive title, Venetianisches Gondelied, usually translated as Venetian gondola song or Venetian boat song. It's one of three of Mendelssohn's Songs Without Words to bear this title. The others are in books two and five, and all three have certain features in common. They all have a time signature of 6-8, which sets up a rocking motion in the music that is said to suggest the gentle rocking of the iconic Venetian boat in the canals of the famous city. They're all in a minor key, and all start with an introduction which sets up this rocking motion before a wistful, nostalgic melody gets underway. This sort of piece, suggestive of the motion of the gondola, came to be called a barcarolle. The sadness of the music reflects the way Europeans viewed Venice in the Romantic era. After the fall of the Serene Republic at the hands of Napoleon at the end of the 18th century, the city had fallen on hard times. It came to represent a sort of idealised, romanticised decay, which inspired literature, visual art and music for a century or more. Pieces like Mendelssohn's were typical of the then-current view of a once-great city, yearning for a glorious past, lamenting its current poverty and facing an unknown future. 
Ian Munro's recital continues with a set of pieces not unlike Mendelssohn's in their structure, but which come from the opposite end of the 19th century. Sergei Rachmaninov was, like Mendelssohn, a virtuoso pianist, and like Richard Strauss, Erich Korngold, and others, despite living well into the 20th century, he pointedly decided not to go down the path of European modernism, as typified in the music of Arnold Schoenberg, Igor Stravinsky, and Bela Bartok. And like Mendelssohn, whose own music often referred to the past, this set of pieces by Rachmaninoff, too, pays its own tribute to music of earlier times. The composer called this work Six Moments Musicaux, a French title meaning six musical moments. Even the title refers to the past, using the same title Franz Schubert used for a set of six short pieces written in the mid-1820s, around the same time as Mendelssohn's first book of songs without words. Rachmaninoff's pieces were written in late 1896 and are much less well-known than his Piano Preludes or the Etude Tableau. Yet despite being published as a set, each of the six is a standalone work in its own right and each pays homage to the past in some way. The first piece is also the longest and it makes reference to the Nocturne, a form invented by the Irishman John Field and perfected by Chopin but unusually it treats the nocturne melody as the basis of a set of variations, a standard form of the Baroque and Classical eras. The second of Rachmaninoff's musical moments pays homage again to Chopin, but here it's the earlier composer's studies, his études, which provide the seed. Virtuosic and requiring great technical control, this piece provides an enormous contrast to the first on almost every level. Contrast again greets us with the third piece, which at the outset suggests a song without words, perhaps in the form of a funeral march. Some writers regard it as the most Russian of the set, with a darkness and passionate introspection which often marks the most moving music of Slavic composers. The Presto in E minor, which comprises the fourth piece in the set, is the shortest of the six, but it's also possibly the most technically demanding. It suggests Chopin's famous revolutionary etude at the beginning, with its wildly swirling left hand and heraldic, almost defiant right hand. Just as Mendelssohn's pieces could be artistically challenging even when they were not overly demanding technically, so Rachmaninoff's fifth piece looks deceptively simple on the page, especially coming as it does after the wild demands of the fourth. Mendelssohn's Venetian reflections are also referenced here in what is Rachmaninoff's take on a barcarolle. The challenges for the pianist here are more subtle, especially in giving direction and proper focus to the Russian composer's seemingly endless melody. Rachmaninoff's final musical moment is a glorious one, a brilliant etude which, like the best concert studies, doesn't sound like a study at all, yet its demands on the pianist are more than considerable. Between the thundering treble melody and the driving bass line are countless demi-semiquavers, providing a shimmering bed of sound, but which require almost more fingers than the pianist has available. And so to the final work on the program, a world premiere performed by the composer. Ian Munro's second piano sonata bears the title Moscow 1986, and I had the chance to talk to him about the new work recently. I started by asking Ian about writing for his own instrument, the piano, and whether he wrote for himself 
or with a view to his music being played by others. I spent a long time not writing music at all in my 20s. And then when I did go back, I didn't write for the piano. And um, I kind of understand now why why other composers I know have said that they don't write for piano or have avoided it. Uh, Because it's, I I think it's just the the culture of the piano, especially if you're a pianist, is so overwhelming. There's this burden of styles and works that you carry with you. And so it's sometimes hard to escape and to find your own way at the piano if you're a pianist. But now having returned to write more and more for the piano because I incorporated it into chamber pieces and now this is the first solo piece I've written for a very long time, I think I'm comfortable with the balance of writing my own music and also just reflecting the personal heritage I have. Um, the piano sonata is its really an homage to three composers, Prokofiev, Shostakovich and a little bit of Kachaturian, mm. <laughs> but mainly those two, because I think that um, those two composers represent not just 20th century Russian musical genius, but also this very particular Russian struggle that they had foisted upon them by world events, mm. um, that suffering that you hear particularly in Shostakovich mm. and the way Shostakovich used very subtle harmonic and melodic language to sort of forge forge a modern path in what would would seem to be quite a traditional idiom. Now, speaking of your sonata, it has the title Moscow 1986, and there's clearly a story behind that. Can you fill us in? On my 23rd birthday in 1986, I boarded an Aeroflot flight from London to Moscow to take part in the Tchaikovsky competition. And it was quite an amazing experience. Um, I was the only Australian to go that year because other Australians pulled out and they drew lots by country and Australia was first. So I went up and I drew my lot out of a, out of a hat, pulled out the number, gave it to the jury chairperson and uh, they yelled something in Russian and the room erupted and I became an overnight news story because I'd, I'd picked number one and the Russians are very superstitious. So they thought this must mean something. And, uh, well, it didn't mean a lot because I went on the next morning and um, I didn't pass through the first round. <laughs> but, I, but I did get on the front page of the national newspaper is, is Vestia. And, of course, I mean, the whole experience of going to the Soviet Union in 1986, particularly after... Uh, Chernobyl had just mm. blown up mm. in the April. This was in June, uh, so just a few months earlier. And we walked into the dying years of the Soviet Empire, and it was like walking into a science fiction movie. Really. Oh, amazing. Yeah. But on the other hand, the other part of it was to play in the Great Hall of the Moscow Conservatoire and also just to um, be in the audience because we all when we weren't playing, would go up the back and sit in the audience. Mm. And just to witness the importance that the event had for Muscovites, mm. they took it terribly seriously. They mm. queued for tickets. I was very impressed in a way. It was mm. quite moving. So have you aimed to sort of distill those experiences in the sonata? Yeah, very much. Um, 
it references a lot of the music from that period, from that place that I played. For us, anyway, the whole Soviet era is quite exotic. It's mm. it's gone. There's a certain romance of the exotic. Mm. Can't get too romantic about it because, of course, <laughs> yes. it was pretty dreadful. Indeed. But nevertheless, um, I've never never forgotten that experience all these years later. And I do often think about it and what it meant for me and why it is that in situations like that, music and the arts can become so important for people. Mm. So the sonata I was trying to express some of that angst, I guess, and that atmosphere. Mm. And I like writing pieces that, I'd say, respond to music I love, respond to composers I greatly admire. So this sonata is all about um, Russian music. I mean, the the whole recital is actually about Russian music because my contention is that Rachmaninoff um, was a great admirer of Mendelssohn, well, he Mm. was, Mm. and that actually a lot of the Rachmaninoffian techniques we hear in, say, the preludes and etudes and even the symphonies derive from from Mendelssohn, mm-hmm. but anyway, that's not that's another story. So it's quite a gritty kind of piece, um, quite Prokofiev, Shostakovich sounding, <laughs> but <laughs> full hope. of personal resonances, which will be fascinating. Very, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, well, it's meant to be. It's it's a personal story. That was pianist and composer Ian Munro chatting with me about his new piano sonata, Moscow, nineteen eighty six which will receive its premiere performance in his recital in the Great Performers series at the Melbourne Recital Centre. The program, which includes music by Mendelssohn and Rachmaninoff, will take place in the Elizabeth Murdoch Hall on Wednesday the 16th of June at 7.30pm. You can find out more and book tickets online at melbournerecital.com.au. It promises to be a brilliant musical experience. Technical production for Great Talks is by Duncan Yardley, and I'm Graham Abbott. I look forward to sharing more musical stories with you soon.